0: Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now with your host, Peter Miller. Welcome, and today we're joined with Carrie Reimer from Parkland Restorative Justice from Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. Welcome, Carrie. Thank you, Peter. It's my pleasure to be here and honour
1: to be asked to be on your show.
0: Okay, so let's start with your academic experience after high school.
1: Well, I'm going to break it up a little bit here and, and talk about my lifelong education, if you don't mind. And um, my my early school years were, were pretty good, typical middle-class family, etc. But um, and uh, my education was reasonable i'd say middle class prairie family but i struggled with uh, with finding meaning uh, i found from an early age in my teens i was looking for meaning from life and i wasn't finding it um i made a statement to my mom i think i was 14 years old that uh one of my deep inner thinking statements of my life and it seems to have stuck with me or, or maybe cursed me, but I told her that life had essentially no meaning and our our only uh, reason for being is to have fun, as much fun as possible. And so that sort of drove my life for a lot of years and um, did a lot of partying, um, smoking, drinking, women, um, sports, um, I mean, I I worked in the family business for, oh, 20, 30 years, actually, from the time I was 15 till I was uh, 49 years old. What was the business? We had a small business, and uh, I took it over from my father uh, once he retired, and it was a trades business. We did electrical repairs and refrigeration, appliance repair. And it was very successful, very steady. We had a monopoly, almost no competition. And uh, I mean, I learned a ton about business from that. And um, it was very helpful at setting me up as, you know, work ethic um, for the rest of my life, which I enjoy to this day. And um, considering the other part of my life, um, the trying to negate my thoughts and find escape and, uh, it was a positive part and a steadying influence for most of my life. I knew I always loved uh, education and books, but my uh, I didn't have the uh, the moral f- or fiber to uh, to strike out and do it. So I struggled with uh, self will and, and knowing what I wanted, and and then uh, the bravery to go and do it. and uh, Early in my 20s or my mid 20s, I took some trades-related courses and uh, and so forth. And then I took a university course uh, in English literature. And writing and reading was always something I was passionate about. I was uh, enjoyed reading the big stories, uh, Warren the Peace and Moby Dick, and and all the classics uh, from Mark Twain to to Kafka and, and so forth. So, uh, many of my small town friends, uh, didn't really understand that stuff. And, uh, and I can see why. And I was labeled as the guy who reads. (laughs) And, um, yeah, I was, it, it felt good to me and, uh, it kind of showed me different lifestyles around the world and, and helped me reflect on what other people were doing and what was possible. So, um, into my 30s, I was still a voracious reader, but I was also interested in spirituality and got into Zen and Buddhism and did a lot of meditation and uh, staring at the wall, counting my breaths. And and there was uh, a certain satisfaction in that, but it didn't really take, um, it was a very lonely exercise, I guess you'd say, and uh, no sense of community to it. And uh, I, uh, I faded away into my 30s. At um, the age of 38, I found myself in a very desperate part of life, and um, I actually struggled with stress most of my life uh, because of poor relationships with my f- biological family, a poor relationship with myself, and with my higher power as well. And um, at, at some point, I was, wasn't even able to make it into work. I was fatigued. Um, I'd been doing a lot of exercising, and uh, I couldn't even go to the gym anymore, and everything seemed to be falling apart. Uh, I lost my, the girl I was with at that time, and I became very depressed, and um, the doctors were talking about chronic fatigue syndrome, and I in no way felt ready to take on this kind of challenge. Within a year of that, um, I was doing better, but still physically uh, disabled. I was working and stuff, though. But um, I met another woman, and she was French, and she was exciting, and she would take risks, and uh, she got me to stretch myself. And she was invited to a church one Sunday, and I went to this small Pentecostal church. And uh, if you would have told me when I was twenty or something like that, I'd become a Pentecostal. Uh, I would have told you, you're absolutely crazy. But I went and it took, and the people loved me unconditionally. And I was excited every weekend to go to church and uh, be with this new community of people that was so exciting. And to learn about this God who was so loving, and who was filling a part of me that I'd been looking for for most of my life. So at the age of 40 years old, I became a born-again Christian and started a whole new journey that I'll say right now that my life has never been the same.
0: So it's a street education, but it's really, uh, it made you different. So let's talk about your work experience. So
1: my work life was, um, I mean, I think I learned a lot about people during my work years. Uh, I went to a lot of people's homes. I was in them, um, for a couple hours at a time working on their appliances or their electrical issues. And I found the part that excited me most wasn't the business side. Unfortunately, it wasn't, um, the uh, the actual mechanics it was when i got to meet with the people and sit with them and listen to their problems listen to their victories and successes and and share a bit of my own as well and that was a reflection to me of the path i would go on after this and um and it wasn't so much the business that i was concerned about i was concerned about my spiritual journey which then morphed into concern with other people's spiritual and emotional journeys. So after coming to faith at forty, I uh, I continued with my business life and made a good living. And um, but by the time age I was forty nine, I was just so restless. My little small town had just continued to to get smaller, and I was just so restless to live life. And unfortunately, a good friend of mine, one of my core friends of six or seven of us that that hung out our whole lives. Um, He was the most lively one, the most life-giving, the most energetic uh, physically and emotionally and he caught cancer and uh, passed away shortly after at the age of 49 and that actually ended up being a motivation for me. Um, It gave my head a shake that If I wanted to find something that really stirred me up that to get out of the complacency that I felt I was still living in, even after I came to faith, that I was still doing stuff that I wasn't really passionate about. And this time is short. I mean, I'm 49. I've been doing stuff that is not my passion for so long. It's time to go. (laughs) And... This uh, friend of mine passing away was a huge part of that and so I registered I put my business up for sale. It did not sell. We um, a Very specialized business in a small community. No one else really wanted to take it on. So uh, I Sold the assets had a little nest egg uh, Packed up my little house rented it out in Verdon and moved to Saskatoon, I registered for school at uh, a small Bible college in Saskatoon and fled my little town and uh, just had a great time. The, the school college experience, a four year bachelor's degree was an amazing experience. Um, even though I was sitting around with a bunch of 20 year olds most of the time, <laughs> uh kids fresh off the farm some of them um I probably probably brought a little cynicism a little sarcasm to their lives <laughs> but um it was a great experience um going physically to the school and being in class was what I wanted um it's how I learned best in the community of the classroom and um and it was good it was um uh, I'll, I'll never uh, I'll never regret that that risk. Uh, it wasn't cheap for me, but um, but as far as living a short life here with looking for meaning, it's going to stick with me for the rest of my life. And uh, after I finished that, actually, I took some more courses in uh, counseling, and uh, started my master's in counseling, which was very much what I felt the direction I was going with is to to be with people, to listen. To them to be present for them to bring god to them in that moment and uh, to bring hope and healing to people's lives and that has driven me now for the last few years as i um, go into nonprofit work i've worked for uh, an inner city saskatoon street ministry in saskatoon and um that helps treat people and in saskatoon that's a large percentage is indigenous and uh, then I moved on to, uh, <clears throat> to uh, we moved, uh, well, I met my wife in school, and uh, we got married in 2017. And we started working within a one-month period. We uh, were offered a job at um, a homeless shelter in North Battleford, where I'd never <laughs> spent any time. And uh, we were offered a job. We, uh, we packed up and moved. We got married. And we found a house and bought it within a six-week time period. And uh, we were so excited about what the next step held and, and passionate about moving into the, helping the homeless and those with less than. And uh, we were able to do some advocacy work, uh, speaking to groups and religious groups, political groups, uh, all kinds of groups. And, um, it was very a learning environment, <laughs> a growing edge without, without question, working with a homeless in a small shelter, you basically do everything. Uh, you might be talking to funders one minute and face to face with an intoxicated, um, a person on crystal meth, uh, who wants to strip off all their clothes and run around the parking lot the next minute. (laughs) And so uh, it was quite an environment, a huge learning curve, something I found that I couldn't do for very long, Uh, highly draining, and it's a 24-7 sort of environment in a small shelter like that. So eventually, uh, my wife and I moved back closer to Saskatoon, and I was offered a job with Parkland Restorative Justice who i'm with now and uh, who i'm highly blessed that our paths have verged together and uh, <clears throat> parkland restorative justice is uh, based around prison visitation and this prison visitation initially started off in the early 70s probably one of the first restorative justice programs in north america actually in the early 70s, uh, Chuck Colson and prison fellowship didn't start till about five years afterwards. And so the Mennonite Church of Saskatchewan ran uh, this visitation, which was called person to person. And they took volunteers in weekly and met with inmates on a uh, for a couple hours every Monday. And um, they've done that for since 1974. In 2014, the uh, organization was named and incorporated as a private organization, Parkland Restorative Justice, in order to greater access, more diverse funding sources, as well as volunteers, leaders, and staff outside of just the Mennonite Church of Saskatchewan. And so now we have funders in the Catholic Church, in the United Church. Part of my vision and and growth, uh, considering my background, uh, I worked in fund development and communications at me in Saskatoon for a brief period. And um, I wanted to break in to, first of all, more advocacy for the need of the isolation in the prisons, uh, the the men who struggle in there, especially during COVID, um, to speak to groups, to speak to business groups, to speak to... uh, other foundations to to let them know the need here, uh, and to kind of move to balance our funding base into more um, secular options, um, and um, yeah, that's that's my current goal right now is uh, is to solidify the funding structure. Uh, this coming year, we're going to be experiencing a big loss uh, one year from now in our funding structure where. Uh, COSA, which is our other program besides person-to-person. COSA is Circles of Support and Accountability. And when a sex offender has been released from SAS Penitentiary, uh, the parole officer will interview them and give us a referral. And Circles of Support and Accountability is a group of three to five volunteers with a facilitator who surround an inmate Week, week by week, day by day, and basically lead him in responsibility and accountability for his life and his past and integration, safe integration into the neighbourhood. Highly successful. Over 80% um, improvement on recidivism with this, with this uh, demographic and a very successful program, but Public Safety Canada is cutting the funding completely a year from now. And it makes up to a third of our budget, so we've got some work to do. We don't want to lose lose this, and uh, so that is one of my my challenges: is to uh, keep this programming moving.
0: So, Kerry, uh, talk about the importance of partnerships for Parkland uh, restorative justice. You can't do it all by yourself. You need partners. So that's on my
1: my sheet as well on my task list um as a small organization the executive director gets it all and uh, partnerships and networking uh social media there's they're all connected and they do take a lot of work and partnerships are one of the big ones i'm new to prince albert and um so i'm spending a lot of time on social media i'm going to a lot of zoom meetings these days i'm um and i'm starting to break through to the local um cbo's community-based organizations they're starting to get to know me a little bit and as that develops those who are involved in very similar activities i'm i'm aiming to partner with financially uh, program wise Uh, let's not reinvent the wheel we do this well they do that well our Goals are pretty similar. Let's actually get together on some funding structuring and, and work together on this. Um, for instance, uh, Straight Up is an organization that is involved in um, helping gang members exit the gang lifestyle. Uh, that would be a very closely aligned uh, CBO that we would want to partner with, and. Um, John Howard Society has recently re- come back into Prince Albert of, after a few years away, and I'm in the process of working with them on furthering our uh, our programming, our funding structure, and, uh, and staying more sustainable as well. Indigenous organizations, uh, we will be moving towards partnerships with them as well. Many of the men we work with inside are directly from the local reserves in the saskatchewan area so these are all options and um uh, we've only been a separate organization from uh, a religious church um since 2014 so we've diversified into other faith-based groups now the next step is to diversify in a little bit beyond that
0: wow you're you're doing great work so let me ask a, a rather interesting question that you may not have thought of, but it's, it's fun to put people on the spot. <laughs>
1: for you. <laughs> where,
0: where do you see yourself three years from today? What's it gonna look like?
1: Yeah, that's uh, putting me on the spot, right? Oh, thank you. Sometimes uh, I know I need that from the people around me to, uh, to make sure I am goal setting and, and dream, dream making, which are important things for us to do these days. Or at any time three years from now I, I hope i've taken parkland restorative justice in not just sustainable ways that uh, maintain what we're doing but in new avenues um, uh, right now because of covid we've been forced to shift our focus we're not we haven't been allowed during the time since i've been working there in august I've only been inside the prison maybe 10 times, and our volunteers have been completely shut out for the last year. So, my focus has changed, and we're trying, we've put together a program with a small grant from Prince Albert Community Foundation to reach out to the families of the incarcerated. We put together an information kit for children preteens and teens and we're going to be delivering them to the schools and these kits contain information uh, on their psychological uh, health um, and mental health physical health <clears throat> there's encouraging uh activities in these these kits as well as ways to reach out to their parent who is incarcerated as well and so that is on the ground happening as we speak so we're trying to shift with the covid <clears throat> complications and the way it's attacked our programs so in the next three years i would hope to continue to take those learning lessons keep them active not just shed them but keep them active and and grow into more even Um, the dad hero program was one that we had done before but covid shut it down completely dad hero works inside as well as for some recently released inmates on the outside and they meet and they um they mentor the men in uh, good parenting practices and there is a lesson plan and everything but a lot of it is relationship based and uh, i'm looking forward to that ramping up again and and um in particular i want to learn from john howard society I, I see how they've grown so much uh over the years and how diverse they are and with my background in homelessness and interest in mental health and wellness and, and addictions, uh, I'm passionate about all these things. I find they're just all coming together. Um, and I'm hoping in this short time span, three years or five years, that, um, that we can grow into those. I'm bringing them to the table at Parkland Restorative Justice. Um, here's what I'm bringing. Parkland, let's make it part of our programming. And, uh, and keep growing.
0: Okay, that's great. So uh, how do people reach your organization if they want to get in contact? So, for example, let's say that I'm in Montreal, Quebec, and I'd like to start the same kind of operation in Quebec. Have you thought about replicating what you're doing in other communities?
1: Yes, um, there have been person-to-person groups, um, some of them in different names across the country. Uh, BC has M2W2, uh, which is man-to-man, woman-to-woman, and um, it's just a style of visitation, and it's kind of a sister program to -to person-to-person, prison visitation and so m2w2 in vancouver bc if you google that you would see their their programming Um, i believe that they are under a faith-based organization as well i believe the catholics are are the founders of them Uh, p2p has existed in alberta and elsewhere but if anyone is interested uh please look up our website uh, com. and uh, and I'd be happy to talk to you. As I said, the COSA organization in the next year is probably gonna be transitioning out. Uh, We're praying for a miracle that somehow it it can find funding.
0: But... um, What what, what about the province though? Wouldn't they be uh, looking to help you expand even within the province?
1: Conversations have been had. they, they know about us. I mean, we're not, it's not just part of the sort of justice. There's my commission that does the exact same thing in Saskatoon. And there's COSA, South Saskatchewan out of Regina that currently has 13 or 15 circles of these surrounding 15 inmates who are sex offenders. So we have, we cover the province in a loose sort of manner. Um, but I don't know specifically about the province and what they've said to us. Um, I mean, COVID is a challenge. A, a lot of money will have been shifted around, um, but I want to remain positive and creative funding structures. We're, we're going to be putting our heads together with these other sister organizations.
0: Well, thank you, Kerry. It's, uh, it's quite a journey that you've been on both academic and, I know you don't like the term business, but also spiritual. (laughs) So it's a combination of all three, and you've achieved a great deal of success. So thank you for joining us today.
1: Such an honor, Peter. Thank you. Um, Yeah, I'm not adverse to the business part because I see the advantages it's brought to me, um, especially in this current role as ED executive director of, of parkland. So, um, <laughs> there's lots of good, good things to that.